0: Before Night Falls Alzheimer's Researchers Seek a New Approach by Jerome Groupman First published in The New Yorker, June 24, 2013 Risa Sperling remembers her grandfather as the robust, genial patriarch of her family. When she was young, he took her ballroom dancing and deep-sea fishing. But as he entered his 70s, he became irritable and short-tempered, worried about money, and suspicious of Sperling's father and aunt, whom he accused of stealing from him. Always a dapper dresser, he began to leave his house looking disheveled. Soon he couldn't dress himself at all, and he eventually forgot how to use a fork and knife. He had a history of hypertension, and his doctors attributed his change in behavior to dementia, brought on by hardening of the arteries. They gave him sedatives to treat his agitation, but his condition continued to deteriorate until he died in 1993 bedridden, oblivious to the world. Sperling was starting medical school at Harvard when her grandfather fell ill. A small, energetic woman, she is now the director of the Alzheimer's Clinical Research Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. In her grandfather's decline, she has come to recognize the trajectory of Alzheimer's. The disease typically appears in one's 60s or 70s. Although in rare cases, determined largely by genetics, it can arise as early as one's thirties. The first signs are subtle, small changes in personality that grow increasingly acute over the next five to ten years. The full-blown symptoms are heartbreaking, a loss first of short-term and then long-term memory, an increasing inability to reason, disorientation, confusion, and a lack of emotional control. Finally, the patient loses control of basic bodily functions. Most Alzheimer's patients die of pneumonia after aspirating saliva into their lungs. The disease cannot be definitely diagnosed until autopsy, when the brain is examined under a microscope. But doctors can reach a presumptive diagnosis early on by ruling out other causes of dementia, such as stroke, a tumor, vitamin B12 deficiency, or a malfunctioning thyroid. In the United States alone, roughly 5 million people suffer from Alzheimer's, a figure that is expected to more than double by 2050. The annual cost to the nation for treating the disease may then approach a trillion dollars. The cost in suffering is incalculable. Yet three decades of Alzheimer's research has done little to change the course of the disease. Although several initially promising agents have been developed to reverse or at least slow the decline of cognitive function, successive experimental trials have failed. Some drug therapies come with unpleasant side effects, including headaches and bleeding and swelling of the brain. One vaccine was encouraging in rodents, but when tested on patients, it caused inflammation of the brain and did not improve their condition. Most researchers believe that two commonly administered drugs, Dinepazil and Memantine, which aim at modulating the activity of key neurotransmitters, have limited short-term effect and do nothing to slow the progression of the disease. Sedatives and antipsychotic drugs such as risperidone are palliative at best. Earlier this year, the National Institutes of Health agreed to sponsor a trial that will be overseen by Sperling and Paul Azen, the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study and a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego. Several other studies are being funded as well, and many researchers are cautiously optimistic. Typically, experimental drugs have targeted a protein called beta-amyloid, which collects in heavy deposits, known as plaques, in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, and which is thought to stop nerve cells from functioning. Researchers have long tried to clear away the plaques to help patients suffering from memory loss and confusion. That approach has not worked, but recent studies have hinted that it may be possible to prevent dementia by halting the buildup of beta-amyloid years before any symptoms appear and when the protein has not yet caused irreversible damage. If so, Alzheimer's could be treated preemptively, much the way heart disease can be forestalled by taking medications such as Lipitor decades before the fatty plaques caused by high cholesterol build up in one's arteries. Alzheimer's isn't yet treatable, but it might be preventable. This year, the National Institutes of Health committed $36 million to Spurling and ASIN's study. Not all researchers support this sizable bet. George Perry, a prominent researcher at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, told me, These clinical trials are unlikely to have a direct therapeutic benefit. They are extremely naive and reflect a simplistic view of the disorder. The trials don't even aim at helping current patients. If they do show promise, a marketable drug would still be years away. Sperling, who has a clinical practice in addition to running her research trials, acknowledges these limitations. The first thought I had was about all the patients I take care of, she told me. Nonetheless, she is certain that there is a critical window for successful treatment. By the time a person has even mild Alzheimer's-related dementia, with impaired short-term memory and some difficulty in daily functioning, he has already lost 50% to 70% of the neurons responsible for healthy memory and reasoning. The bottom line, she said, is that if beta-amyloid is a critical factor, we should try to go after it. Alzheimer's disease was first described in 1906 by Alois Alzheimer, a German psychiatrist and pathologist. He had spent several years observing a middle-aged woman whose memory and cognitive abilities rapidly declined. When she died, Alzheimer examined portions of her brain under a microscope, where he noted plaque deposits. He also observed that the finer inner structure of the nerves in certain brain regions was disrupted, forming tangles made up of a protein later called tau. Alzheimer's discoveries remain the basis on which modern pathologists recognize the disease. Today, Alzheimer's researchers mostly fall into two camps. The Taoists believe that the tau protein tangled within the neurons causes dementia by disrupting the interior workings of the brain cells. The larger group, who call themselves Baptists, contend that the beta-amyloid protein is the key to understanding the disease. They believe that the protein can be toxic and that plaque deposits interfere with the transmission of signals at the synapses between neurons causing dementia. The debate has gone on for more than a decade. The new experimental trials led by Sperling and others will test the Baptist view of how to treat the disease. Dennis Selko, co-director of the Center for Neurologic Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital, belongs to the Baptist camp. When I visited him at the center's laboratory recently, he took me to a kind of brain bank for researchers a large room filled with freezers that stored cross-sectioned brain tissue from dozens of people who had suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Selko showed me a slide of brain tissue from one of his former patients, a 69-year-old stockbroker who over the course of 10 years had declined into terminal dementia. The tissue had been stained with various dyes, so that under a microscope I could see a network of normal nerve cells pocked with orange spheres that looked like gumdrops. Those are the beta-amyloid plaques, just like the ones that Alzheimer saw more than a century ago, Selko said. The brain was also flecked with what looked like ink stains, the tangles of tau protein. Examining the slide under higher magnification, I could clearly see how the two proteins targeted different areas. The tau tangles clustered around the nucleus within the cells, and the beta-amyloid plaques built up outside of the cells. After years of gathering incremental evidence, Selko now believes that Alzheimer's disease is caused primarily by an excess of beta-amyloid. In the early 1990s, he discovered that the more common form of beta-amyloid was detectable in the nerve cells of fetuses as early as 17 weeks, when the protein appears to play a role in the brain's development. It guides how neurons extend their arms, called axons, to abut other nerve cells and form synapses. A typical beta-amyloid protein is composed of a string of 40 amino acids. It derives from a longer protein that enzymes cut into a precise length. But the beta-amyloid protein can be cut longer by just two extra amino acids, and some of these longer proteins can ultimately congeal into plaques that are toxic to nerve cells, Selko said. As we age, more of the longer beta-amyloid is found in the brain. To demonstrate the toxicity of the slightly longer beta amyloid, Selko showed me videos of several laboratory experiments. In one, rats were placed in a far corner of a cage. As they wandered to the other side, they were given an electric shock. Half of the rats were then injected with the elongated human amyloid. The other half were controls injected with harmless saline. The control rats huddled in the corners, fearful of further shocks. But 24 hours later, after being injected... The amyloid-treated rats blithely ventured across the cage and were shocked again. Selko was also struck by research done in the mid-1990s on children with Down syndrome. They have an extra 21st chromosome, where the gene for the precursor of the beta amyloid protein is located. By the time they were 13, their brains exhibited a plethora of plaques, Selko said, akin to what is seen in Alzheimer's. Having an extra gene for the protein means there is more protein available to be cut into the longer form of beta-amyloid. In another key discovery, a variation of a gene called APO was found. It normally produces a protein that absorbs beta-amyloid and clears it from the brain. People who inherit a certain version of this gene, called APOE4, tend not to clear amyloid sufficiently. By age 60, they are 3 to 12 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's than those with more common versions of the gene. Alzheimer's can have a strong genetic component, and it can ravage entire communities. In Colombia, researchers have identified an extended family of several thousand people, many of whom carry a mutated gene for the enzyme that cuts the precursor of the beta-amyloid protein. The result is an excess of the elongated form of beta-amyloid. The likelihood of inheriting the mutated gene is thought to be 50%. Everyone who has it eventually develops Alzheimer's, and most begin to show serious signs of dementia in their 40s. This type of early-onset Alzheimer's is extremely rare, but the Colombian case provides what many consider to be the most convincing evidence yet for the amyloid hypothesis. Special PET scans of Colombian patients revealed widespread beta-amyloid deposits beginning in their 20s, and tests of their spinal fluid showed high levels of the mishap beta-amyloid protein. This genetic malady was discovered in 1984 by Francisco Lopera, a professor of neurology in Medellin. It can be traced back to a single Spanish settler who arrived in the region in the 18th century. Pierre Terrio, an internist and geriatric psychiatrist and the director of the Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix, described a visit that his team made with Lopera to one remote village. They gathered the settlers' descendants in a church. The people were courteous, but also scared, Theriault said. The disease has taken a toll for generations. A village spokesman thanked the researchers for bringing the attention of the world to their plight. Back in Medellin, when Theriault asked an assembly of families what the researchers could do to help them, a woman in the audience called out, ''Diapers! We need diapers!'' Further evidence for the amyloid hypothesis comes from Iceland. In August of last year, researchers from DECODE, a genetics company based in Reykjavik, working with the biotechnology company Genentech, based in South San Francisco, reported the discovery of groups of Icelanders and others with a very rare gene mutation. It reduces the frequency with which the precursor protein is cut into the elongated beta amyloid. The mutation has the opposite effect of the one found in Colombia, People with the mutation are more likely to retain sharp cognitive abilities well into their 90s. Dennis Selko called the discovery a thunderclap. Whether certain mutations accelerated the disease or slowed it down, they all point to the amyloid hypothesis, he said. To me, as a life scientist, this is just really compelling. The beta amyloid findings may have implications beyond Alzheimer's. Proteins are not mere strings of amino acids, but complex three-dimensional shapes, like origami. Many neurodegenerative diseases are thought to result from errors in the way the proteins fold up in their final forms. In Alzheimer's, the misfolded protein is beta-amyloid. In Parkinson's disease, if the protein alpha-synuclein folds incorrectly, it clumps together in the brain into what are known as Lewy bodies. Huntington's disease appears to be caused by a misfolded protein called Huntington. If the new Alzheimer's trials succeed in eliminating the abnormal protein form of beta amyloid, they may suggest ways of preventing these other maladies as well. Researchers in the Baptist camp are further encouraged by two clinical trials of a new experimental drug called solanizumab, the results of which were announced last fall. The drug, made by the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, was tested on two groups of 1,000 people, each from 16 countries, who had been diagnosed with mild to moderate Alzheimer's. The results showed that the subject's mild cognitive decline slowed by 34% over 18 months, compared to controls who hadn't received the drug. Salco attended the conference at which the data were presented. This is the first evidence that an agent directed against the beta-amyloid protein can slow down Alzheimer's clinically, told me. That's a very big deal. I saw the data presented, and it can't be explained away. Peter Davies, the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the Feinstein Institute of the North Shore LIG health system, takes a more tempered view. I am distinctly underwhelmed, he said of the drug trial results. Although Eli Lilly conducted the study to allow for combining the data, Davies argues that the drug company aggregated the results from the two trials in a way that made the outcomes seem more significant than they actually are. And, he said, by focusing exclusively on beta-amyloid, the research community has overlooked other potential causes and actual treatments. Studies by George Perry of the University of Texas suggest that Alzheimer's may be caused by toxic molecules called free radicals that inflame neurons and disrupt the energy-generating mitochondria within them, ultimately killing the cells. The beta-amyloid field has dominated both NIH funding and pharmaceutical funding for 20 years, Davies told me. It's depressing because I watch a lot of young people who come up with clever ideas, new ways of thinking, and they're just destroyed. Davies calls young dissenters from the beta-amyloid consensus, voices in the wilderness. Despite such concerns, the NIH announced in January that it had selected solenozumab for its use in the trial being led by Sperling and Eisen. When it starts this autumn, the Anti-Amyloid Treatment in Asymptomatic Alzheimer's Disease trial will include 1,000 volunteers from across the country, aged 65 to 85, who will be studied for three years. The trial will enroll subjects who are basically healthy but at the tipping point, Sperling said people who can take care of themselves and who show no impairment on standard memory tasks, but whose PET scans show a buildup of amyloid plaques in their brains. Sperling says that studies she has performed with Keith Johnson, a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an expert in brain imaging, have shown that structural changes in the brain's memory networks can begin a decade before symptoms become obvious. Her critics don't dispute the finding, but they aren't convinced by it either. Perry argues that beta-amyloid deposits may reflect a normal protective response to inflammation, which he views as the primary cause of the disease. And he expressed grave concerns about preventive treatment targeting amyloid. It is dangerous to give such experimental agents targeting beta-amyloid to normal people, he told me. You may upset the equilibrium in the brain. Finding the right subjects for Sperling and Asin's trial is a challenge. The researchers need to identify people with enough beta-amyloid buildup to indicate that they'd probably develop dementia, but whose brain cells have not yet begun to decay irrevocably. Doreen Rents, a neuropsychologist specializing in Alzheimer's at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts General Hospital, who works closely with Sperling, developed what she calls a hippocampus stress test, aimed for the brain's seahorse-shaped memory center. Standard memory tests can help diagnose full-blown dementia, but they cannot detect the early hints that beta amyloid has begun to interfere with memory processing, even in cases where a subject's brain scan lights up with plaque deposits. In Rentz's test, subjects are asked to associate faces with names and other identifying information, which is flashed on a computer screen for five seconds. I took the test recently, with some trepidation. Rents began by calling up a series of photographs on a computer monitor. Each was a face, distinct in age, ethnicity, and hair color, with different expressions and styles. One woman wore a hat. Another had long, dangling earrings. A corresponding name and occupation appeared below the picture. Courtney was a dancer. Jane, who wore a chic hairstyle and a scarf, was a weaver. Bruce was an architect. In the second round, In the second round, I was shown the faces again and asked to recall their names and occupations. I'm in my 60s and think of myself as having a good memory, but I was unable to remember many of the given associations. I felt sure that I had failed the test, and I was reminded of the fate of my maternal grandfather, once vigorous, who had succumbed to Alzheimer's. Older people with even mild Alzheimer's have trouble forming new memories, Rents said and the test was designed to evaluate those abilities. Later she told me that my recall rate was 60%, which was respectable for my age. Rents then gave me a second test. I was shown photographs of famous people without their names or occupations listed. I correctly identified Gerald Ford as a former president, Jacqueline Kennedy as a former first lady, Sidney Poitier and Audrey Hepburn as actors, and Lucille Ball as a comedian, and had no trouble identifying others that followed. Walter Cronkite, Mother Teresa, Bill Cosby, Barbara Walters, Nelson Mandela. The test is designed to test a subject's long-term semantic memory, and Rents' study has found that patients with mild Alzheimer's do poorly on it. The test is one of the several steps involved in following subjects for Sperling and Azen's trial. For the selection process, subjects will also undergo brain scans to look for beta-amyloid plaques, and a detailed assessment of their ability to perform activities like dressing neatly, cooking, and paying bills. Although Alzheimer's cannot be definitively diagnosed until after death, the advent of PET scans has improved the prospect of predicting whether a given patient will develop symptoms. A PET scan highlights proteins that have bound to certain radioactive isotopes injected into the body. In the images I saw, beta-amyloid plaques were lit up in reds and oranges, while unaffected areas of the brain appeared a cool blue. But the predictive power of the scans is limited. One day, Keith Johnson showed me a series of PET scan images taken of the brains of study subjects. One was a scan of a 72-year-old man who had tested well on standard cognitive exams, but was later identified through Rentz's hippocampus stress test as mildly impaired. The image flamed with oranges and reds, indicating extensive beta-amyloid deposits. This is someone functioning independently, holding a job, doing their everyday activities, without trouble, Johnson said. But there is something wrong with him. Next, he showed me what looked like an almost identical image of a brain taken from a 71-year-old man that was packed with beta-amyloid in several brain regions. This person is quite impaired and deserves the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, Johnson told me. He is unable to function, scores terribly on memory tests, and he is unable to dress properly and care for himself. He has tons and tons of beta amyloid in the same distribution, the same pattern as the prior person. PET scans may one day enable researchers to distinguish between such patients. And from the topography of beta amyloid deposits, predict which ones will succumb to Alzheimer's, Johnson said, but in the meantime the images alone aren't enough. Peter Davies considers himself neither a Baptist nor a Taoist. He doubts that either beta amyloid or Tao is the real culprit, noting that it is impossible to tell from brain scans how the workings of the two proteins relate to each other if they do at all. It's very hard to say, well, obviously beta amyloid comes first and leads to tangles, or vice versa, because each is found alone in different regions at different times, Davies said. So where does this amyloid idea come from? Memory impairments typically involve damage to the hippocampus. But, Davies noted, in people with early Alzheimer's, the hippocampus usually exhibits a buildup of tau, but little beta amyloid. Instead, the beta-amyloid collects in the upper regions of the brain called the frontal and parietal cortices. That would seem to suggest that beta-amyloid plays a smaller role in the disease than has been thought. Sperling says the observation, though true, misses the bigger picture. The anatomy of memory is subtle. Functional MRI and PET scans, in conjunction with memory testing, suggest that the parietal cortex is linked to the hippocampus by networks of neurons. So the memory loss might be prompted by damage caused upstream by the beta amyloid. I think it's a clue about what's going on with the two hallmark pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques and tau tangles, Sperling said. Even though they start in two different places, they interact in this network. It's particularly telling, she believes, that the buildup of beta amyloid in the parietal cortex often occurs in patients with few or no symptoms. Davies, though, argued that the trials directed against beta-amyloid are targeting the scars of the disease, the lesions the disease produces, without targeting the process that produces the lesions. He also disagrees with the widespread belief that certain forms of beta-amyloid are toxic. He notes that in mice that have been genetically engineered to overproduce human beta-amyloid, there is little or no loss of nerve cells. Davies despairs that the string of failed trials targeting beta-amyloid has led researchers only to a belief that the protein needs to be targeted earlier instead of raising the possibility that it might be the wrong target altogether. The amyloid hypothesis is still being pushed as the mechanism of treatment despite the fact that we can reduce amyloid in patients and not see any benefits, he said. Richard Scheller, the executive vice president of research at Genentech, believes that eli Lilly's trials of solenozumab, the drug that will be used in Sperling and ASEN's trials, were very promising. But he's frustrated by the speculative nature of the results. It's a promising result and a step in the right direction, Scheller told me. But one could ask, who cares? If you're not able to go about your daily activities with any more robustness, with the drug or without the drug, how useful is it? Davies is more blunt. At what point do you start to say, enough? It's sad, because I'd love it to work, but the data don't fit. Maybe the hypothesis is wrong. Maybe we have to go back to square one. Over the past hundred years, thanks to the development of antibiotics, vaccines, and other treatments, the lifespan of the average Westerner has steadily increased. In 1900, the average American died at age 47. Today, the average lifespan is 78. Current surveys show that, of the population over 85, roughly a third of the people worldwide have Alzheimer's. And, as Keith Johnson noted, some people develop beta-amyloid plaques as they age while remaining healthy and cognitively intact. The abundance of beta-amyloid and tau in the brains of some older people raises the question of what aging actually is. Martin Samuels, the head of neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, told me. If we lived long enough... Would we all become demented with plaques and tangles? Is Alzheimer's just another name for aging? Several other drug trials are underway that, like Sperling's, aim to prevent the buildup of beta-amyloid. In May of last year, the Banner Alzheimer's Institute announced the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative, a series of trials that will focus on cognitively impaired people who are at risk for Alzheimer's. Our Alzheimer's study group was established largely from the efforts of Newt Gingrich and his colleagues, Eric Riemann, a neuropsychiatrist and the executive director of the Banner Alzheimer's Institute, told me. In 2007, in a meeting with Gingrich, a former Speaker of the House, concerning government funding for Alzheimer's research, Riemann and his colleagues laid out their vision for a series of prevention trials. Gingrich asked how much it would cost to do one study. Riemann said roughly $100 million. Gingrich then asked how many trials would have to be done until one might actually work. A colleague of Riemann's estimated that perhaps 10 studies would be required for every success. So Gingrich said, if I get this right, you're telling me it could take $1 billion to find a treatment to significantly reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease, a disorder that we know with certainty will cost more than a trillion dollars a year by 2050. Who in his right mind wouldn't do that? This year, the Banners Alzheimer's Institute, working with Francisco Lopera and Genentech, will conduct the first API preventive trial involving 300 Colombians and some people in the United States. One group will receive the anti-amyloid drug, pernezumab. A control group will receive a placebo. A third group, made up of family members who have tested negative for the gene, will also be given a placebo. Participants in the trial will not automatically be told whether or not they carry a mutated gene. They will be informed of their status if the trial slows dementia to the degree that those in the placebo group might want to undergo therapy. The study will cost a little over $100 million. $15 million will come from the NIH. $15 million will come from private donors through the Banners Alzheimer's Institute. And about $65 million will come from Genentech, the drug's manufacturer. A follow-up API study will involve subjects who carry the APOE4 gene. In contrast, Sperling's trial will select subjects based on the relationship between their age and their likelihood, deduced from PET scans, of developing Alzheimer's. Sperling said that these two approaches should be seen as harmonious. Genentech, along with its Swiss parent company Roche, is also conducting several other independent trials aimed at arresting early beta-amyloid buildup. The results will begin to become available toward the end of this year. Richard Scheller of Genentech believes that the Columbia study is probably the most scientifically direct test of the amyloid hypothesis. If the trial in Columbia prevents accumulation of beta-amyloid in the brain and shows this with scans, but people still get the disease, then I think we are looking under the wrong street lamp," he said. In May of 2012, Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, formally announced that the Obama administration was committed to finding new treatments to prevent Alzheimer's and ameliorate the effects of the disease. Recently, Russell Katz, a neurologist and the director of the primary Food and Drug Administration division that oversees Alzheimer's clinical trials, says that an effective therapy for early Alzheimer's disease would need to make an objective impact in the lives of the afflicted. The FDA would consider approving a treatment if it slowed the decline in patients' cognition, provided that it ultimately improves their daily life. In some clinical trials, the current group of anti-amyloid agents have shown side effects, including brain inflammation, and it is unknown whether their long-term use comes with risks. The subjects in the preventive trials are still healthy and could remain healthy for many years, but they will be receiving potentially toxic drugs, the benefits of which are debatable. To skeptics such as Peter Davies, the gamble is not worth taking. Recently, Sperling and several colleagues met with Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader, to make the case for further government funding. I explained to Congressman Cantor that this kind of funding is a drop in the bucket if you look at the national costs of caring for people with dementia, she told me. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine estimated that caring for an Alzheimer's patient costs 41000 to $50,000 a year. In addition to her NIH-funded trial, Sperling is designing a clinical trial that will combine an antibody against beta-amyloid with an agent that inhibits beta-secretase, an enzyme that cuts the precursor protein. Beta-secretase belongs to the family of enzymes that have been responsive to AIDS prevention drugs in patients who are HIV-positive. Sperling calls her dual approach a combat trial. I think it's a war, a war against Alzheimer's disease, and we are losing, so I'm going to use military terms, she said. She argues that those who are concerned about an ill-conceived rush to preventive trials lack the appropriate sense of urgency. The idea of waiting another 10 years just to study the natural history of Alzheimer's disease is not tenable, she said. These are the dilemmas. How do we make the best possible decision right now in the absence of all the data we need? She paused for a long moment, then said, My biggest fear is that we are just doing too little too late, and that even if we move sooner, we're not lowering amyloid sufficiently. So we will get to the end of the trial and say, well, here we are. And we have the same conundrum. We just did not do enough.